Welcome to another episode of Whiskey on the Weekend. This is part two of an episode recorded on October 6th. Joined by Boston Zone, the Dunkin' Donuts coffee drinking Celtics Tom Brady fan, Levi Baxter. Oh, God. That was terrible. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Say hey to the people, Spencer. Hey, everybody. Nice. Did it for me. All right. Well, we just finished up part one. We did our on-brand segment. Typical um, part one of these two-part episodes. BJ's providing the whiskey this week. Um, before we get into the second whiskey, BJ, that you provided, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your new segment on pottering around uh, on Mangum Reads. Uh, yeah. So we're doing a chapter-by-chapter chapter read of uh, Harry Potter. Um, I think we're... well. In terms of recording, we're just about up to chapter 10 in terms of releases. Um, depending on when this comes out, we're somewhere between probably 5 and 10. Um, and it's a lot of fun. We have some recurring segments, some uh, rotating segments, and uh, myself, Spencer, and your wife have a lot of fun going over it. And uh, it seems to be you know, reasonably liked for the listeners that we have. Speaking of segments, uh, regular Mangum Reads, which is like a Mangum book club uh, that you, Spencer, and my, and my wife do, I understand that has a new segment too, which uh, I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, so um, it's actually a segment that I feel like I've sort of talked about on this podcast, and um, which is reading one-star reviews. Uh, <laughs> and it, God, it's my favorite thing. Um, and I actually started briefly looking around to see if like there were star reviews for whiskeys, if I could, you know, bring that into this. Um, and, uh, but it, it's so funny because it's one of my favorite things to do when I look up restaurants, especially ethnic restaurants, which I mentioned on, on that podcast, which is like read the, the really white people that go to really ethnic restaurants and give it one star and like take pictures of the food. And, you know, so you get to see exactly what they hated about their food. And it, it's just, I just always find it so funny. Um, and one of my favorites is definitely like Chinese restaurants when they're like legit Chinese restaurants. Um, and you can get like, you know, good Sichuan food or uh, something that's, you know, fairly uh, local to a part of China. And this person goes like, I walked in and I ordered like beef and broccoli and chicken chow mein, and it was gross. And then there was one other thing that like they recommended that I tried and it was super oily. And it was just like, okay, I this is a restaurant that I definitely want to go to because you had a really bad time. Yeah, and those get racial really quick. Okay. <laughs> Those people eat chicken for you. I can't believe that. Speaking <laughs> of China, uh, just so we can continue the theme from uh, from from the first segment here. Um, breaking news, Terry. Breaking news. Um, Daryl Morey is in trouble. Oh, he is indeed. <laughs> tweeting, tweeting support uh, for the protesters in Hong Kong. His owner has now distanced himself from him. Uh, the Rockets have lost sponsorship deals. Um, I really like how you said his owner. The CBA has cut all ties. And by the way, who leads the CBA? My man, Yao Ming. God, he, he is the love of your life. I do love Yao Ming, but he's pulled he's pulled his support of the Rockets and he played with the Rockets his entire NBA career. Yeah, Maury in trouble. A lot of drama going on. Spencer, what's your take on on Hong Kong? Do you support him? Ooh, on the spot. Remember, remember, we don't have any advertisers just yet. And China's a big market. So consider- this is going out into the world. 
I mean, it's been a difficult question with Hong Kong for a long time of where their role in the Chinese economy and their role in the Chinese political system was always uncertain as to what it would play out to be in the future. And I support people asking a lot of questions. They got in, they were reincorporated back into China under the idea that they would be able to maintain a degree of independent system. And that's been increasingly eroded. And they don't really see what a positive end game for them is there with a variety of economic problems that are meaning that young people don't really have much of a future in the local economy. Um, there are a lot of very valid reasons to protest. I don't necessarily see where they will end up. China, from their perspective, cannot compromise and cannot in any way allow their chosen, essentially, leader of Hong Kong to falter. And so I don't know what the solution to this ultimately is going to be, but I support people's right to protest at what are some serious problems, both in their politics and in their future economic future. Well said. Well, Spencer, what you just encourage is blood on the streets. So I want people to know that. Weren't you the one that previously talked about watering the tree of liberty? Oh, I 100% co-signed that. Um, I just know that. <laughs> slaughter um this is not oh, going to oh be i know levi wants to burn it down in hong kong because he wants to burn it down here he wants to burn it down everywhere <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um so let's go ahead and what is the session or the talking point terry you had what i thought you had a talking point for oh i for do have time. i do have a few topics um but maybe we can get to the second whiskey first oh good good point so um, so this is a more typical bourbon, and um, I'd like to hear your thoughts before I tell you exactly what it is. Um, and also sort of the um, uh, news and things like that. So I'm going to try and do at least a little bit of if there's a news article that's related to one of our pods, um, uh, bring it up. So apparently... Um, among the retaliatory tariffs, uh, because we're pissed off the EU, supposedly, um, that there's going to be a 25% tariff on all uh, single malt scotch whiskey imports, along with uh, foreign wine and some other things like Parmesan cheese, olives, etc., etc., from the EU. So um, if that goes through, uh, scotch might become quite a bit more expensive in the near future. Well, Tiro doesn't drink. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like somebody should remind him that it's because people made whiskey more expensive that the American Revolution happened. That was about tea, man. Uh, yeah, totally. Just just about tea. I, yeah, I, li I like that several of our founding fathers were basically made their living as whiskey smugglers. That's kind of how they got their capital that helped fund the initial parts of a revolution. John Hancock wasn't wasn't a legal smuggler of goods. We are a criminal com uh, country from from the founding, right? For a bunch of we beat all the Our biggest complaint, essentially, with the British was they're finally starting to regulate us again. Well, we can't have that. <laughs> a pretty corrupt way, but yes. Yeah. We were still paying significantly less in taxes than the British people themselves were. America. Yep. <laughs> so. All right, I've tried the whiskey. Spencer's been sipping on it a little bit too. So what do you think? Not a real big fan. Um, okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of flavor in it, but there's a, a weird thing on the back end. It almost like gets bitter. Um, finish it that I'm not crazy about. Um, yeah. I don't know. It just seems like a relatively standard bourbon. I wouldn't be surprised if you hit us with a name we knew. 
Yeah, this, I, I mean, it's better than the Costco bourbon was, but there's some things that remind me of it. Ooh, dang. Um, yes, he is. Um, I agree with Terry. It, there's there's complexity. There's notes there. It's just the complexity and notes that I don't necessarily like the mm -hmm. whole time. Um, so comparison to like a, a go-to of yours, like where would you put this? Uh, I mean, for me, if we're using Black Saddle as my maybe like go-to for bourbon, uh, that's a California pretty high bar. Bullet. Yeah, we, we think we think we agreed. Bullet was a pretty good go-to standard. Yeah, Bullet Maker. Well, you just you you just let us know how much you make. That that Black Saddle is your just your regular go-to. Drink outside of you guys. So I'm trying to do it best I can. <laughs> um, but I mean, I if I had an option between Bullet or this, Bullet would be a heartbeat choice. This was I agree that has an interesting complexity of taste. Uh, it comes across as just being, in my mind, rather generic. Uh, it doesn't, I don't, the flavors don't particularly resonate with me. Uh, it screams bourbon, but not in a way that I particularly enjoy. Probably right on par with Bullet, maybe a little under. Uh, I'd personally put it a little bit above, but it's a different class, right? Bullet doesn't have like a lot of complexity of, of, of taste. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, this has a little bit more smoothness at the at least to me in the front and then the back it's got a very as spencer would call it campfire taste in the back yeah bj is this over 80 proof oh, yeah it's well over 80 proof um so uh makers for the first time put out a um barrel strength uh their uh barrel finished with oak staves uh line and so i picked that up so it is a makers uh product so uh, barrel strength meaning that they do not cut it when it comes out of the barrel, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is a uh, almost 110 proof, so about 55%. Mm. Woo! So so as it goes, like I think it's very smooth for what it is, but I don't think it's very good for what it is. But also the price point is it's like 60, so well, that's not bad. It's cheap for a a barrel strength. Alcohol for the price. But but I, I think the, I think what you might be tasting in terms of the bitterness might be the oak staves that they're finishing it with. So um, I don't know. I, I think that's it's one of the methods that people had started trying to use to finish whiskey faster, which is put pieces of charred wood into the whiskey so there's more wood for it to go in and out of. And I think that they've had a moderate amount of success with it, but I don't think it imparts the same thing that age does. I'm curious. So I, I don't smoke cigars really. Um, mm -hmm. Would this go well with a cigar? I'm thinking in terms of, of it, it, it beats you over the head, but when your mouth is full of cigar sort of flavor that you need that to sort of get over and above that, the taste of the cigar. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Because I think there are two ways to go with whiskey. One is something like this, which is like it has a punch of flavor, but it is overall mild. And things that are, you know, as woody and peaty as you can get to like mm -hmm. stand up to a cigar. And so, yeah. one of those two, and I think this would be a, a good one. Yeah, I usually go with the second. Uh, I know it's sort of. Commonplace, but I I want a scotch with a cigar. Well together. Cool. All right, Terry. Well, thank you, BJ. That's very interesting. Okay, yeah, I've got a couple segments I want to talk about. Uh, so the first one um, 
is related to something we talked about in part one, which Spencer referenced cotton candy grapes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I guess genetically modified grapes to actually taste like cotton candy. They're really ridiculous. Uh, Washington State University is apparently the foremost uh, organization in the research of apple creation, so creating different types of apples. Mm-hmm. Apparently have one they've been working on for 20 years called the Cosmic Crisp Apple that's going to come out this fall in limited quantities, but next fall you're going to see it everywhere. Fresh Market, Whole Foods, everything. Now, just throwing it out there, does that hit you as weird or as offensive as cotton candy grapes just on the surface? What, just the name? It's the fact that they're doing this, that they spent 20 years creating a new genetic variety of apples that they're they're trying to... No, I mean, it, it's really supposed to kind of taste like a mango a little bit too. I mean, I don't, I have no experience, no idea what it was going to taste like, whatever else, but part of American history is the idea of diversifying apple crops. Apples are famous for the uh, degree of variety that apples coming from the same tree or the same seeds will be entirely different from each other and whole new crops have been bred from that. So I, yeah, I don't, I've, I've got no problem with new strains of apples coming out. I mean, the, the, some of the problems we've seen with a lot of the apples that we see in stores nowadays is that they are designed to stay longer designed to have better shelf life and lose a lot of flavor. And so if they can explore new ways to fix that current trend, I'm all for it. This is why we're friends, because you're you're right there where I'm at, which I don't know why, but for me, apples are in a different category. You're telling me I've genetically modified watermelons to not have seeds. I'm going to say that you're Judas Iscariot. Like that's that's heresy. You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, but if you say I have a new kind of apple, Totally fine. Like think about the Honeycrisp apple. That's a genetically modified apple created in some lab somewhere. And we all love Honeycrisp apples. They're like the, the top of the top. So I feel like, I know it's kind of a, maybe a mundane point, but we talked about, you know, these, these grapes that they've modified to, to taste like apple or cotton candy. And we were all mortified, but an apple that they've modified to taste like mango, totally fine. So I've got to come on on the other side. Like I, it doesn't bother me that they've done anything to grapes. They're just gross. It's just the cotton candy flavor. It's just awful. I mean, and it's actually really funny because I don't remember if I I shared this. I don't remember when it was in in relation to the whiskey recordings. But as soon as I tried it, I texted both uh, my girlfriend and my mother. I was like, I just had these. They're super gross. You have to try it. Um, so, So I'm less of the, like, this is problematic in any other way other than I really don't like it. And... Actually, I'm trying to remember, Spencer, like if you have a sweet tooth or not, I feel like every so often you have like weird sweet things that you like. So I feel like you could like these, but. but I what, will the cotton candy with... grapes or something different? Cotton candy grapes. I just don't like cotton candy. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's almost I don't I don't think I'm diabetic, but just like that really intense, like powdered sugar kind of dose. Just I don't feel good afterwards. I thought I was diabetic for about 15 minutes. <laughs> Doctor advised you such. Uh, yeah. Levi, what's your take on these fruits that they put in a lab and it comes out tasting like something else? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm split, right? I've, I've got some, 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 some split feelings on one hand, like whatever, like do it. Like we, we need to use scientific advancement to be able to make our society better. That's just, it's just accelerating what we do naturally. Like we, we did selection for, for, for varieties over, over the years that now we're just doing it in a lab. So it's the same thing. Um, on another hand, it's absurd, right? It, it, it almost seems like the, the, like 
one of the things you'll bring up if society fails, like is is cotton candy grapes. Like we we, we spend this money on making <laughs> entirely false and, and oh, like constructed God. and synthetic into a natural item. Like that, yeah, we probably deserve to 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 have society fail. Much carbon we put in the air so that we could have a grape that tastes like cotton candy. <laughs> I almost wonder if it, they were trying for other traits and <laughs> this was know, the result kind oh, yeah. of like cotton candy. And then it was just like, all right, well, like, let's take this to its obvious conclusion. Yeah. We thought this could, you know, stand up to glycophosphate or, you know, whatever roundup generation thing, like a little bit better, but it tasted kind of funky and they're like, Oh, we can market this. That. Yeah. Be BJ has has explained a scenario which I I, I recant on, on that that gut reaction, which is yeah, if they're they're trying to make things that were actually important and they stumbled upon it and said, well, why not I don't, make a little bit of money? Yeah, like I don't know, but that like that that's my hope. That sounds really you know, it's very possible that they just decided it's like oh, like you know, we figured out like the this sugar production uh, gene, and so we modified a little bit to, to include some other sugars. And so we're going to do that. And it's like, all right, you know, at that point, um, I'm, I'm a little bit less for it given all the other things that, that we need to deal with. But like at a certain point, you know, as a scientist, it's like, oh, go out and play, like the more, the better. It seems like we have a bit of a cultural difference between like the United States and say the EU with respect to our willingness to accept genetically modified products, like in the U S they're just on shelves everywhere. Whereas in the EU, the packages have to be labeled with warning signs. Ah, they're right? assholes. Assuming they even allowed to come out because of the uh, different, different, different way the, their FDA equivalent works than ours about whether new products can be released. Yeah, I, I feel like at a certain point, they're they're essentially just damaging the environment because they they have you know essentially anti-vaxxers you know complaining too much, and. Really? We're going to criticize the EU for ha having anti-vaxxers compared to America? No, but but I'm just saying, like, people getting bent out of shape for GMO stuff, I feel like is is like a similar vein of of anti-science that that our anti-vaxxing problem has, has also thrown up. Yeah, they're probably related. I mean, I think fundamentally, right, they they are less capitalist than we are, right? So their regulation is to curb capitalist impulses whereas ours is to accelerate them so one, one of the big differences with for them versus us is like in the u.s the fda is basically under their testing idea is unless it is proven dangerous or some test shows that it's dangerous it can be released whereas in the eu unless you can prove it's safe it will receive warning signs or not be released boy spencer coming in hot with the lawyer so it's, it's, it's a different degree of focus but i also agree there is a seemingly great great deal more paranoia about genetic modified crops about oh what, what can they do what could their long-term effects be and a lot more concerned about that than we have where we seem just to adopt the mindset of well natural selection is basically just genetically modification that we've been doing voluntarily i mean cows used to be a lot more aggressive and a lot and a lot more aggressive and a lot more threatening we docile them this is kind of the same process. It's just we're doing it a lot faster. Okay, so this go ahead, Leva. Go ahead. I think you're giving us far too much credit. I, I I think the amount of hatred of of evolution in America doesn't warrant the justification of like, oh yes, yes, we actually we've been doing natural yeah, selection yeah, for many years. That, that, that's not happening. I think I think we're just purely a matter of like, it says that we want to do it, then we we should do it. Yeah. Like that's, that's fair. That's our impulse. Um, I I agree with that analysis, right? That this is just a variant of what we've done quote unquote naturally forever. Um, so it's not really a problem, but 
it, it I don't think our motivations are pure. I was going to say, no, I, I feel like if you can modify, uh, you know, corn or, or wheat or whatever, and decrease the amount of pesticides that you have to use, decrease um, the amount of water that you have to use, essentially, like, decrease the amount of natural resources that, that you have to put in, which is obviously going to have an economic benefit, but it also has like a just, you know, straight up resource benefit. I think it's a great idea. And I think that like the EU having some like, at some point, they had to have like a cutoff that they just like, didn't like. Because it, well, it's probably the kill, kill switches they put in put in seeds nowadays, right? So you have to buy buy more seeds. I mean, the, the ownership issue is problematic. Yeah. If you're in a situation of where farmers can't harvest their seeds to replant because of the trademark issues that apply, or even coded, as you said, coded in kill switches, they just will not, they're sterile and will not reproduce beyond a, a certain cycle. That is a, a, a different conversation to have than just what the safety of the product that results. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I like how this conversation is flowing because I have a second part uh, to the segment. So I think we can all agree that like these genetically modified fruits. Hey, you might have a problem with like what it tastes like, whatever, but it's kind of innocuous, right? It's not like yeah. we're harmful on the face of it. So related to that, I'm sending you guys a text right now. Um, China, uh, some, it's not like China, China but uh, China, <laughs> China, this is our China episode. reading giant pigs. Yeah, so I feel like this is like the next level of the conversation about like, oh, well, they made funky apples or grapes. Well, now they're making pigs that are, uh, you know, 100, you know, 1100, 1200 pounds. Um, the, the article I sent you has a, I guess is a tourist riding a pig. <laughs> um, and so I wonder if this hits a different note for you guys, like, okay, you know, you made a funky apple that tastes like a mango, but now you are taking a pig and you are breeding it to be five, six times the size of what a pig should be simply because you have this huge pork demand uh, in China. I feel like I should just go first because mine's the most boring. It's like, you know, that that's fine to a certain extent. I mean, the they were talking for a while to, that they were going to try and um, modify pigs so they, they had like omega-3 fatty acids in them and, you know, modify pigs to, to do a, a whole host of uh, things to make them healthier, better, whatever. And I guess, you know, if... It's kind of like if they can do it and, you know, it, they can do it reasonably and presumably they're doing it because um, the like main input that you have to have with pigs is like in the early part of their life. And that's sort of like the most expensive and then like presumably getting up to weight and for each individual one, like they're reducing costs and, and input. Like I, I don't have a problem with it. Now, you know, this doesn't really bother me. I just... I just worry that they're going to do like something hilariously and or scientifically stupid. And then it's just going to cause like maybe not unintended consequences because they probably know about all the consequences and they just don't care or they think like it's not really going to happen. I don't know. It's like this pig is going to be fine as long as it eats corn. But as soon as it eats rice, it gets like necrotic and, and produces like something terrible. And it's just like, well, you're in China and somebody's going to feed it rice because like it's another grain. Like, why, why would you do that knowing it's the problem? And you're just going to say like, oh, you should feed it corn and not tell people like when you feed it rice, it produces like 10 times the amount of CO2 and it's going to like destroy our atmosphere. And I feel like that something like that is something... That I feel like China would totally do, um, but essentially on the face of it, I'm all for it. 
Okay. Spencer, Levi? Spencer, you ready to go? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in a scenario where I enjoy meat, but I fully recognize that we all should be eating less. And if various new ways can come about that make the process more efficient, involve fewer there resources. More efficient. Levi's keyed in. I'm, I'm leading into Levi right now. I, you know, I'm willing to support it. I fully accept that there will be problems with this kind of thing going forward. Uh, as BJ said, there are always those uncertain, unanswerable questions until it actually goes into operation, uh, the various factors that we can't consider. But... I'm not opposed to um, genetically modifying animals. I mean, these are creatures would not exist other than for the purpose of eating them. Um, and if we can go about this process in a way that results in uh, less ultimate damage and less ultimate re and fewer ultimate resources, I think it's something worth exploring. I can picture it ending horribly in a variety of ways, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't put effort into it. Okay. So, so we've got a long diatribe there. Um, Levi will, will give his hot take, which is um, genetically modified animals are just cuter versions of genetically modified plants. <laughs> I think it's just a plant that's cuter. It doesn't matter. Like, it, same principles apply. Wait, so Ooh, you think a right. polar bear-sized pig is cuter than a normal pig? No, just a, a, a polar bear-sized pig is, is cuter than a... Um, a piece of lettuce. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I, I'm losing three to one here, but I don't like this at all. Um, <laughs> well, because I come at it from a hand, animal welfare perspective, I think that um, when you create these hypersized um, creatures, which they've done with poultry for years, they have turkeys that their breasts are so big they can't walk. Well, yeah, Spencer, to your point, these are animals that would not exist other than for us to consume them. But they are living, breathing creatures that that do have some level of cognition that I think we have some responsibility to say, okay, well, if we're going to bring you into this world, the simple fact of killing you and eating you, we can at least make it a halfway pleasurable experience. It doesn't have to be so fucking miserable that you can't stand up. So, so that's my worry. Clarifying question there, Terry. Um, you were getting the example of, of, of poultry, which is, which is a good one, right? The so large that they can't actually reproduce naturally. They have to be artificially inseminated. Um, they have problems walking. They have sort of like functional defects. Um, if that wasn't a problem, if it's just a big pig, it can still fuck. The pig, pig can still walk. They can still do whatever it needs to do. It's just a big pig. Is that a problem? Uh, yeah. So then that then I'm I'm as comfortable with that as I would be with normal pork production, which is about forty nine percent uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, you're right. But I mean, my worry is when you start, you know creatures that are much, much bigger than they should be. Um, they have all kinds of problems from arthritis to just pain, general pain, and they're not as active. And so the what little life we've given them is now more miserable. I don't know if that's the case here, but when I'm looking at this pig, it certainly it doesn't look like natural. <laughs> I will say, so my hot take about um, animals just being cuter versions of, of, of vegetables, um, there is something that gives me pause about finding out that we're we're creating animals that cannot reproduce naturally. Um, like that to me just seems a bit concerning, at least yes. in some way. And it, well, not not like donkeys. I mean, like they they physically cannot mount each other. Like turkeys and chickens cannot mount. Um, no. Because their their breasts are so large. Some um, ducks like that too. That to me seems. Yeah, some ducks as well. Um, I guess that stuff to me does seem a little bit like odd. I don't quite know how, how, how I can recon, reconcile those feelings. Yeah. How do you feel about pugs? Shouldn't exist. Shouldn't exist. Yeah. 
just just to throw out a stat, by the way, the record for largest pig apparently is held by Big Bill of Jackson, Tennessee, who weighed 2,552 pounds in 1933. Insane. So we've been doing this a while. That's a fake stat. That, that's fake a, stat. That's a, uh, uh, I don't Th- That was a cow dress. Oh, it was eight foot funny. tall. <laughs> so, so Spencer, whenever I hear a stat that says in 1922, something that is a standard deviation <laughs> sure. bigger than, bigger or larger than, than what has ever happened before. Um, I, I say it's a fake stat. Um, it is in the Guinness book. And it, it, I remember the stat from before because he was meant to be displayed at the Chicago world fair, but he broke his leg from his own weight and had to be put down. So that kind of lends into Lee's point. See, that's the, yeah, that's the concern for me. I mean, I think we do. I mean, maybe I'm pie in the sky here, but I think if we're going to be creating creatures just to eat, then they should have a pretty good existence before we, we kill them. I feel like we're inevitably going to a certain scenario where we will be genetically lab breeding meat. That's just probably the way we're eventually going to go, just from a cost perspective. And so cool with that. Opposed to that, I mean, if anything, it's I just don't like how it tastes. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. You did. Oh man, got him in a pretzel. <laughs> 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 is, investing, is investing a significant amount of money in the idea of lab-grown meat. I agree with him that it is probably a positive a positive thing to explore, both from the cost of going into it, the environmental effect, and being able to provide more meat at lower resource use. So. Yeah, I, d- I don't think that that's going to be... Uh, I, I think that's a pipe dream for a really long time. Um, I mean, just... Like maybe at some point we'll be able to do it for, for lower cost or, or lower resource consumption, but I feel like that's um further out um why bj just my own ignorance i don't know um i i think that a lot of times and you know beyond meat might already are uh doing it but a lot of times science scientists will do something that takes a lot of energy and effort and then at some point as you scale it like it might become uh, way more energy efficient or something like that, but I don't think that um, very often it's sort of one of those things that requires a lot of effort, a lot of time, and a lot of energy to maintain to some lab generated standard. So, in terms of like a pig, a pig will fight off infection and sort of eat and do sort of all of those things. Whereas if you're growing something in a lab, you have to maintain sterile conditions you have to provide nutrients in some way and you know a lot of engineers are going to be involved but biology has done a really good job over you know hundreds of millions of years to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish with technology and so you essentially have to do all of those things that it does normally in a lab setting and get that to be energy efficient um, and so they may have done it, but that might be one of the reasons that, you know, we heard about lab grown meat a decade before it sort of hit shelves and it's definitely not cost efficient now because sure. if, it, no, yeah, those companies are still losing money. Well, not only that, but like if it was cost efficient, it would be cheaper than meat. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't think that they're very close to getting it cheaper than meat. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe some of that is governmental subsidies and things like that. But I, I feel like fundamentally it, it's going to get hard to get it cheaper than meat. And, it, you know, it might be a worthwhile thing to do anyway. And and I think it is to a large extent. But 
Um, yeah, it's just sort of. Yeah. Well, BJ, you hit on the point I would, which is I would I would go the route of government subsidies. I mean, we do this with so many other agricultural products. Yeah. Um, I'm not I'm not sure why we wouldn't with this. Just you know, because it's the right thing to do. I think from an animal welfare perspective, but then also from an energy perspective, long term. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, but Spencer, I, sorry, I cut you off. Pretty much, what I was going to say more. It's one of those things that we're right now. It's obviously not efficient yet. It's not competing reasonably with meat, other than from the novelty value or the animal rights welfare or other issues. Um, but I see as increased meat demand grows and increased resource issues occur, the price of meat will probably eventually start to go up for a variety of ways, just because everyone around the world is now enjoying the same, hoping to enjoy the same amount of meat consumption as we are in the United States. And I don't know whether that's practical or reasonable. And so the playing field may alter going forward. Yeah. I, I just wonder with things like this, if they start doing some like really weird stuff, um, like growing them in, in pools or something like that. So they can like deal with the uh, gravity aspects. I think the funniest thing is like, if somebody decides that like the best way to grow pigs is like on a space station, cause then you can get them as big as you want. You need, don't need to worry about them breaking bones or whatever, or just in like a large pool of water or something like that. I just, I, I imagine something like that happening in, with these Chinese pigs at some point that like, they'll have a couple that aren't like, malformed or, or like super weird to like trot around in the public and be like see they're not that bad they're just fine and like the rest of them are in these weird like floating tanks so just... i guess the interesting when i'm thinking more about the story terry um i do tend to think that anything that is not new like direct news like politics finance like things that are quantifiable is very apt to be just a, pe a press release from a company that has a perspective that perhaps this is just a company trying to try to drum up interest in their uh their business seed some stories around the world get a little bit of money because they don't actually have a, a super viable product or, or, they're, or they're trying to accelerate things um because it is to be his point it is, it is questionable about with all of these these heavily engineered solutions how much more efficient are they because they require a lot of very educated people a lot of specific resources that have to be specifically located in, in, in particular places. They can't just be thrown out onto a, into the middle of nowhere in Mongolia. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it does, you know, it, it starts the conversation. No, not, not what you said, Levi. I don't know if the, the, the big pig is yeah. true, right? The giant pig. Um, but I do, I do think it's a conversation starter about that type of, you know, genetic modification in farm animals. You remind me in, in the Bob verse, didn't they end up growing genetically modified rabbits on space habitats? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, the dudes are going for you. Yeah. Um, and like, it doesn't seem like a completely unreasonable solution to certain, like, you know, problems that we're going to end up having. Um, but you just have to sort of look at um, all of the animals that they have brought into space and how much difficulty that they ended up having. Um, I mean, uh, I feel like you would be slightly or relatively amused by seeing cats in space, Spencer. But then, like once the, the I've seen uh, cats, in yeah, it, it's funny. Space or on the vomit comment, they are not content creatures. Yeah, exactly. Oh, is one creature that went to space that did pretty well? Oh my God! Is, is, is it like a chimpanzee? Chimpanzee named Ham. Okay. <clears throat> Little baby chimp that went up there before any humans, and he crushed it. Hit all the right buttons. Got back to home. <laughs> 
did you guys read that article about uh, the Earth creature that's now living on the moon, or which may be living on the moon? <laughs> did you hear about this? What? About the Israeli probe? Uh, the Israeli probe was loaded up with a variety of creatures who performed tests on the moon, and it instead buried itself in the surface and broke. Um, but best that they can tell, it was lo- one of the things it was loaded up with was water bears, which survived contented enough oh, in a yeah. vacuum. Um, Thanks. What, what are those? Water bears, tardigards, uh, are an extremophile creature that they're really hard to kill because they they're perfectly content living in environments that would kill anything else they're creatures that can live pretty much just, they will go into a dormant state near as close as we can get to absolute zero they will live happily at the boiling point they can be dehydrated for 10 years you can put a drop of water on them and they'll be happily restored to life as if nothing happened they are proven to survive in the vacuum of space at least for a period yeah they're in the arctics like they found essentially like fossils of them and that they you know look at them they give them some water and they're like oh uh did i You're alive again. it's one of the creatures where some Jesus bugs it's one of the creatures where some scientists have half jokingly said that man these are an example of an alien an alien life form that's immersed itself into our environment uh, because they will survive a hell of a lot of shit without issue and so the israeli space administration was basically just saying yeah yeah, the probe broke. We're sorry, but um, well, everything else aboard is probably broken and dead. The tardigards, based on everything we can estimate, are still alive and now living on the moon. So we've kind of introduced a new species to a foreign body for the first time ever. So Spencer, when you asked BJ whether he knew about it, did you do it because he was a Jew or because he's into science? Science. <laughs> no, <laughs> asshole. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was an interesting article. And then they're a fascinating little creature. I, I'm really, I mean, if you ever watch the video, the reason they're called water bears is because they walk like bears. If you like watch the moves, they're, they're cute in a micro, in a, you know, semi millimeter size little creature kind of way. And it's really interesting to read about extremophiles and just the, I mean, it's one of the things where they've tested pretty much everyone in the world and they've found tardigards just because they can live everywhere. They found it at the bottom of the freaking ocean in pressure depths that would crush anything else. So, so is it possible that they, those things came to a, the earth and then now we've reintroduced them back to space? I mean, like, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's one of the things we could never know. And some scientists have read about have jokingly suggested it's possible, but I also, I also think unlikely. it's unlikely. I mean, it's also one of the things of where they've survived in a vacuum for the period of time we've measured, but we have no idea that they could survive forever. Um, but at least for a period, tardigards are on the moon and may remain for a while. Ooh. So, so Terry, to 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 loop back into a pod on the the Mangum Talks podcast network, um, they can withstand a thousand times more Grace, radiation than and other other animals. So, they could have engineered these guys to uh, help out in Chernobyl. Wow! Yeah, like they look weird. Okay. Yeah. So they yeah. can. So it'll be like them and cockroaches. Ms. B just pointed out, it's great. I think that's how you actually pronounce it. So sorry about that. I wasn't trying to call you out on that, Spencer. Yeah, you're right. You're, 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 you're <laughs> right. I was working from memory. I'd, I've always just called them water bears, but yeah, tardigrades. With that, learn something. All right. Anything else on this topic that is kind of going all over the place? Yeah, sorry. I found out found a funny thing I read in the news. Interesting. No, that's good. Uh, I think we're good on this have anything else because i got one more thing i could bring up but i don't have to so if you got anything just fire away bring it up okay so um levi and i uh, levi i think you still listen to this podcast we listen to bill simmons podcast um, and he recently had on malcolm gladwell who's just a writer um <laughs> considers himself you know i guess some sort of intellectual i like the guy i listen uh, I, I i read his books but 
Sometimes he can get a little pretentious, but he mentioned something that I thought was very interesting. He said that his latest book, which is called Talking to Strangers, I have a copy of it, that the audiobook is outselling the actual physical copy of the book. Which, me away. I, I mean, and this guy reaches like the top five in the New York Times bestseller list. So I guess my question out to you guys are like, do you find yourself now listening to more audiobooks? I mean, especially we can talk about, you know, what you guys do in Mangum Reads. And is it surprising to you that at least for this author in this book, more people are buying audiobooks than buying uh, the physical books? And do we think eventually that's going to be the norm? I mean, there may be an element of just that Malcolm Gladwell was really good early on in rolling out audiobook equivalents of where the first times I ever got Malcolm Gladwell books, including like outliers, way back in the day before audiobooks were popular, I got them in disc form that I could listen on my car radio. So it may be just that he was particularly good at it. In answer to your question about audiobooks, though, they're certainly much more available. BJ has now made me listen to several for the sake of our podcast. Um, I just don't enjoy them as much. They offer a very different experience. What? Don't just blame me. Just, just blame because you, you're trying you to be Lee's, you know, nice to Lee's wife doesn't mean like I should bear the brunt of this. Yeah, you guys never go at her, by the way. That's so funny to me. <laughs> no, I think simply that you, you, you've encouraged us to do audiobook listens to like we all listen to it in the same format. I view it almost, I don't view it as experiencing a book. I view it as like experiencing a radio drama. And that's just a very different kind of thing. It has its own appeal, but I don't get the same thing out of it as I do when I, when I read a book myself. Well, and to be fair, this is a special kind of audiobook because he has celebrities like reading each chapter. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's probably factoring in, but uh, I, I just, anyway, BJ, what do you think? I mean, do you think it's eventually the norm is an audiobook? Um, no, I, I definitely don't. Um, but I think that there is a bunch of interesting spaces with audiobooks in general. Um, I think that the explosion of podcasts and audiobooks is sort of has to do with like how we can consume media um, and we can consume essentially audio, audio on demand. Um, and I think that there are Books. I think there, there there will be some audiobooks which is just, you know, somebody that's good at reading reads a book. Um, and then there are going to be, as Spencer said, more like uh, radio uh, plays or something like that, where there's a little bit more to it. Um, the One of the podcasts that he's referring to is LeVar Burton Reads, where there's a which little bit great. of uh, music and Foley work and things like that. And so it's more than just a... Um, reading experience. Um, and there's uh, another uh, author that basically uh, of the Bombaverse, which we talked about earlier, that he released another book, which was only an audio book. And it very much had um, audio production value in terms of like how they did things like things that sounded like that, that were coming over an intercom sounded like they, they were coming over an intercom. Things that were over radio sounded like they were over radio. There was a little bit of um, Foley work, as I remember, not a lot, but they produced a story meant for audio. And so I think that that is a, a significant space that people can work in. I think that audiobooks are great. I like them a lot. 
Um, and to Spencer's point, I don't like them as much. And the reason that I think that audiobooks will never take over is because an audiobook defines how people sound and what and and how things are pronounced, what names are, and give you sort of a it imposes a sense of the narrative in the character that isn't already there. And there are going to be people like me, Spencer, probably your wife, and, and probably you two as well. I just, you know, don't know your reading habits quite as well that enjoy their own take on things and don't want the imposition of things other than the story onto, onto the book. And so, it's a much more much more passive experience in terms of how you go through it. You don't have the same degree of agency or involvement because you're inherently going through their interpretation and their expression of it. Yeah, I very much agree with your point, Beach. So I think a good example of that is is Game of Thrones, right? Because George R. R. Martin comes from, uh, he's a TV writer, and the individual POV chapters often are, they kind of read like a TV script. It's very dialogue heavy sometimes. Um, and he does these sort of like... Um, you know, his different like voices for each character, different languages, um, you know, the sort of like suspenseful ending of the chapter. And I felt like Roy Detrice, who's now died, did a pretty good job of doing those audiobooks. And I find myself enjoying the audiobooks of that series more than actually sitting down and reading it. But that's not always the case. Have you listened to, uh, I'm blanking on the name, but um, the actor who played Viserys, Danny's brother? Yep. He does the uh, Duncan Egg, and I think, I think he may, may, may even require him to do the uh, series now that uh, Roy Dries is dead. Um, but Fire and Blood as well. He, he does wonderfully with those. I mean, it's not to criticize them. They are they can be very well done, particularly certain certain ones of it. If you haven't listened to Levar Burton's podcast, he makes a lot of fun with it. And I enjoy that growing up with him doing Reading Rainbow, having you know this wonderful childhood experience, of getting exposed to books. That he apparently really loves kind of psychological horror, and that's most of what he does is really messing with my childhood. It makes for a fun reading and fun experience. They're good. They can be very well done. It's just never going to replace books for me just because it's not the same thing. Like 10 years ago, the conversation was around, okay, well, books are going to go, physical books are going to go away because of tablets and e-readers. True for me. Now, now the conversation is, well, it's going to go away because everybody just wants to listen to it. Yeah, I, I think that the e-reader thing is going to be, excuse me, going to become more popular, but... I do think um, unless there's some like major other reason that that books like physical books won't go away. And um, I don't I don't know if it's the same experience for you guys, but I really enjoy reading a physical book. And that's different than an e-reader. Um, and I think the problem that I have to a certain extent with an e-reader and doing that consumption is um, I jump around a lot more between books, um, and part of that is sort of due to our podcast and me liking just to read for, for reading's sake and, and a couple of other reasons, but um, I'm, I'm more selective about what I buy in physical book form because it's a little bit more expensive, it takes up space in my house and things like that. Um, and a little bit less selective in, in what I'll get in e-reader format for uh, a variety of reasons. Um, and so I don't think it will go out. I mean, I just, I love the smell of uh, a new book. And I think that it's, it's sort of part and parcel to that experience. 
And I think that e-readers are great. It, uh, it makes borrowing books from a library so much easier and I can borrow books that I wouldn't otherwise buy or consume in any other way. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite at the point in my life where I'm willing to go down to a library every couple of weeks and, and you know, uh, borrow a stack of books. Um, I don't know that I, you know, maybe once I get to uh, like my mother's age or something like that, and that's something that, that she does like semi-regularly. Um, so, so there are costs and benefits, and I think that they will each have their place. I don't think it's kind of like the um, cassette CD revolution where it's, it's essentially the same thing. Like essentially you have the, the same, you have a little box that plays music. It's, it's still differing enough in consumption that, that it has its own place. Um, and, you know, it's just not going to go out of style. Yeah, Levi, you've been quiet on this topic. What do you think? Um, I mean, I don't think it's it's reasonable. Um, it's going to be the main way that information is communicated, just because talking is so much slower than reading. Um, long term. Um, by the way, you're you're sort of burying some of the lead there, right? Because because Malcolm Gladwell said that uh, Bill Simmons was a little bit confused and like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and then Bill Simmons asked Chuck Klosterman. Um, in a following episode, and Chuck was like, "Yeah, it's not, it's not true. It's not true for me." Um, that may be a very specific thing for Malcolm Gladwell, because um, I do might, think it yeah, is. Yeah, which might be a factor of how he did the book, right? With having the celebrities, you know, weigh in or whatever. But I, you know, it just it, it begs the question. I think that 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 Malcolm is in a specific spot where, as Spencer pointed out, he was very good about. Uh, producing high quality audiobooks very early on. Um, and more importantly, he has a podcast series now. So he has cultivated this this audio format, um, whereas more traditional authors just haven't, right? Uh, that's that's not a common thing um, that all, all authors can do. So I, I, I think there's some specifics there. Um, I will say the audiobooks to me are not as interesting. Um, like for, for whatever reason, I, I really listen to audio for podcast and i read books like i, I just I, I honestly never listen to an audiobook um oh wow it seems really weird that i would try it no never had an interest hmm. seems like unnatural in a way <laughs> which is probably hear you you know i hear what you if you tried one what you thought like especially like a good one if we could find you a good one because that's another thing about audiobooks i feel like they're high risk high reward um, I mean, well, also to, to Levi's personality, it's, it's inefficient. Um, but it, it is slower. He's right about that. Um, the other I, thing that I would say is like, I, I think that there are times that the audiobooks try and do things that like can be hit or miss. Um, I listened to um, American Gods and they had gotten the actors that portray the characters on the TV series to do their parts. That's pretty cool. Um, and it was cool, but I don't feel like it really added anything. Like, cause I hadn't seen the TV show. Um, and so like, maybe if I had seen the TV show, like I can see that being a really big draw for people that don't read as much and, will have seen the TV show and are like, hey, like I want to read the book because I like the TV so, so much. And 
like for me it was just like well i i mean i kind of know who these people are but you know they're they're good enough at reading and and whatever else and so it's fine but i i don't i didn't feel like it added that much for me because i hadn't also seen the tv show You'd also need a perfect adaptation to make that work, right? It would need to be completely by the book. Because like with Game of Thrones, the best example is there's so many characters that there aren't an actor. So if they tried to do that, it would just be like half the actors, yeah. half the characters have an actor. Right? I think that that's at least some of that is because, you know, because there were so many actors on, on Game of Thrones and there were so many uh, characters in the book that there was just no way that that like, was going to be adapted, like as cleanly. Um, and, and right. again, you know, some big characters, like, it, you know, maybe they didn't have a perfect overlap and didn't really matter. Um, so, uh, but it's an interesting thing to think about, like how, what is going to happen to the audiobook genre? Because, um, I don't know how well it's going to continue where like they can charge as much as they do for it. Um, and just essentially have somebody reading it. Um, but on the other hand, there, there are a lot of projects that they get like random people reading books, and apparently those things are like the worst thing ever because sometimes you get somebody that's, you know, decent enough at reading the book. And sometimes you get a bunch of people that are horrible and they stitch the audio together and it's, you know, just a terrible experience. And I mean, it's free, but it's not something that you actually want to consume. I don't know. Right. So curious whether the answers here will change um so not in not related at all to audiobooks or books in general um but it's related to sort of technology replacing something that had a physical physical instantiation uh, many years ago um use them on their phone they prefer to print them out i bet spencer prints it i i will typically do both just because i so damn paranoid that my phone will not work or the barcode won't appear when I need it to that I'm just more comfortable with the physical pass. I have succeeded in getting my mom to often use only her phone. Um, but again, I like Spencer, like she sometimes wants to print it out, but essentially I've always told her like you can always go to the airport and just print it out quickly like if there's some issue, but uh, which... Um, but, but yeah, I'm a hundred percent. Like I, I was so com committed to not printing out boarding passes that before I had an actual smartphone and I had an uh, iPod, whatever that had like a color screen and everything, I would download my boarding pass to that. <laughs> No, just... Well, that that says just how long it took it for you to get a smartphone. <laughs> so, so I feel like the iPod Touch came out before smartphones were like reasonably accessible, and it was like shortly after that that I got uh, a smartphone. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So my answer here is um, I use the phone. Uh, I have no problem using the phone. There's only two instances in which I don't use the phone, and it doesn't come in my career anymore, but used to, I used to travel internationally to develop, de uh, developing areas. Yep. And I would always print the boarding pass there. I didn't know about the Wi-Fi. Uh, and two, sometimes I will print the boarding pass if like Sarah and I are going somewhere kind of special and I want to save it as like a memento of the trip. Aww. If it's just like, I'm going to DC for work, it's just on my phone, of course. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think there's, I haven't fully thought through this. It was just a, a thought I had because I, I was checking in my flight earlier today um, for some, some travel I have to do for work. Um, I think there's some parallels there, right? I mean, if, it, it, if there's a special book, the concept of reading an audiobook to me is, is, is almost seems like crazy, crazy talk, right? Um, but if it's just like a ho-hum book, you'll just grind through, listen to some audio in the background. Like is it, nothing requires deep thought. It's just like pleasure listening, basically. Right. And I feel like you can do that more with podcasts than with books, especially yeah. fiction. Because if you lose the narrative, it's over. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I mostly agree with you. I mean, I've definitely listened to a lot of audiobooks, and um, I it, and my consumption of audiobooks really goes along with like how much time I have to consume them. Because if I don't have a lot of time to to uh, consume them, essentially while I'm at work, so like if the work that I'm doing does not require a lot of attention, then I go through a lot more audiobooks because like I have the time to do it. But um, I don't have like a long enough commute or something like that that I can really consume an audiobook at that point. And so, um, the... hey, do you ever listen to audiobooks in the gym? Um, I have, but I don't like to. Um, I, I, so I, I've done it while like running on a treadmill or something like that. And I've done it while lifting and it just, um, like, I feel like I should pause it before an actual lift because like, I can't actually pay attention and then, then like I, it would break up a lot, um, maybe a little bit more with running and it sort of, then again, depends on a book. Um. So, so yeah, that, that's sort of where I'm at with uh, both of those. Um, so I actually had uh, something that, a last thing maybe, um, unless there was more on the audiobook. Genre. I think that's it. And I think we're running up against our time, but bring it up, but let's, let's, yeah, let's. It'd be super quick. Move. So um, I felt our listeners should know that, that one of uh, Spencer's highly rated couples things was gardening which kind of baffled me. Um, and I guess it, it made me think about like what couples things that I, that I like to do. And I guess I just wanted to toss it out there because while I feel like I know the individual people on this podcast, you know, reasonably well, like I, I have no idea what you guys do in your personal lives and, and, you know, not, not in a very, like very personal aspect, but um, what do you like to do with, with your, uh, very significant others? Um, cause every so often, and Spencer, I'm sorry for calling you out, uh, and putting on blast so much, but like the things that you choose to do sometimes and, and like we find out about are just surprising to me. Um, I mean, on the podcast, I talked about that one, um, when Bridget and I went out to that little burger shop and had a couple burgers and shared a shake and re sit next to the jukebox reading a Kindle together, that was very much the embodiment of a really pleasant day that we both enjoyed together. Was that that was a date we both had a blast on? So yeah, that that's an example. Just like going out to restaurants, uh, reading a book together, watching a television show together, those kind of things. It's, it, 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 I would say that that one prior story I told was just really an embodiment of things that we particularly enjoy. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I guess like, and I, I every so often wonder if I'm like dragging people places, but 
with you know pretty much every significant other that I've had, and I'm really happy that that um, enjoys it. But like going and trying new places is like one of my favorite things to do with people in general, and specifically a significant other. But um, one of my favorite things that that we've done and we do every so often is is just like reading together on a couch, especially like um, I think it was like a uh, last year when it was surprisingly cold in North Carolina and actually snowed and just like each finding like a book or two that we really enjoyed and just like sitting and reading it uh, uh, on the couch for for hours on end. Um, and so things like that are, are things that I particularly enjoy doing with somebody else and particularly a significant other. But but yeah, your um, gardening comment just thoroughly amused me that that was like your your go-to and and yeah, it's not it, it wasn't even a go-to it was just it's something that Bridget very much enjoys and so I just wanted to spend a few hours going out there and work with her. It, she finds it very relaxing. It's just a, it's a, something that can be controlled and built up in a way that. Uh, Adds a degree of order to things, and so I can understand why she enjoys it. You should introduce her to Minecraft. <laughs> she actually knows what addictive personality she has, and I've advised her to avoid Minecraft for just that reason. <laughs> that will be maybe scratching too much of an itch there. We take our dog, and then we go on walks. We'll go to the Biltmore. We'll go to certain trails, you know, that are pretty scenic, and we'll walk around. So that's kind of like a our weekend trips to Asheville are kind of an all-encompassing. Uh, sort of two, three day vacation for a lot of the stuff we like to do together. All right. Well, I think we've hit on our topics. Anything else you want to bring up before we wrap up? Good. Had fun. I enjoyed it too, folks. This was part two of a uh, whiskey in the weekends episode recorded on October 6th. Thanks fellas. I really enjoyed it. See you.